Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Jonas Poer Rasmussen about his animated documentary film, Flea. Flea uses animation to tell the story of Amin Nawabi, which is a pseudonym, who is a friend of the director who fled Afghanistan as a boy, relying on human smugglers to eventually reach Denmark. Jonas is a Danish-French director based in Copenhagen. Flea is his fourth feature-length documentary, and it has done incredibly well on the film festival circuit. It premiered at Sundance 2021, where it won the World Cinema Documentary Grand Jury Prize. It's Denmark's official Academy Award submission for Best International Film. It's winner of a couple of Annecy Animated Film Festival Awards, Vision du Real Audience Award, many, many other awards, and it is being talked about and named to just about every award season nomination and for your consideration list. Prior to Flea, Jonas made a documentary called What He Did in 2015, which was winner of the Fapreski Prize at the Thessaloniki Documentary Film Festival. In 2012, he made the impressionistic documentary fiction hybrid road movie called Searching for Bill which was winner of the 2012 Nordic Docs Award at CPH Docs. And his first film in 2006 was Something About Halfton, which is a documentary about his grandfather, the writer Halfton Rasmussen. It was interesting to hear that his own family history in many ways echoes that of his subject in this film. And I thought that makes this an even more personal documentary. But I do think one of the things that's really at heart here, and you can kind of miss it because of all the tragic stuff that happens to Min, is the friendship between the filmmaker and Amin. It's a bit depicted in the film itself directly, but it's also implicit in the trust that Amin has and his involvement in the film. Yeah, this film is a true collaboration between two friends. Amin, who's story is being shared with us and the filmmaker Jonas. And I think it's almost miraculous that Jonas was able to come up with the exact right medium to tell this story, which was animation. And then to be able to bring that to fruition, which is a monumental task, and to tell the story in such an artful and impactful way is something that is clearly resonating with audiences. This film is definitely going to be one that I think lives on for a long, long time. It's going to become one of the classic documentaries. Coming up, our discussion with Jonas about his film, Flea. Why do you make documentary films? I think I'm, I'm just fundamentally curious about a human story when I meet people. And I'm just really interested in hearing their background and why people act the way they do and what makes them tick. The first one I did was about my grandfather. He had just died and we were in his house. We we're looking for the will in the house. We couldn't find it, but he said, I found these old VHS tapes. It was like old films that he had filmed uh, with a film camera back in the 50s. And so I sat down in his house, put in the tape in this recorder. I saw the, the films and I was just all of a sudden there were these stories coming at me from his past life that I didn't know anything about. And it just dragged me in. And that was the first film I did. I thought I knew my grandfather, but 
I didn't. There's this entire story right there that I didn't know anything about. And then I, you know, started digging. So that was really where it all started. When did you first meet Amin and get to know him? I first met Amin when I was 15 years old. I first saw him on the train. It's in the film. We didn't have a lot of immigrants in my town back then. I grew up in rural Denmark in a very small village. And people didn't really care about fashion. But he did. And, and he was very nicely dressed. And I noticed that. And I thought, okay, this, this guy is cool. I want to get to know him. Then I found out that he stayed in foster care with a family in my hometown, just around the corner from where I lived. We started meeting up at the bus stop every morning, going to high school. And we became very good friends. That's about 25 years ago now. And in all those years, he never told me or anyone else about how and why he came to Denmark. I was, of course, curious, but he just didn't want to talk about it. You mentioned your grandfather earlier. I understand your family also has an immigrant story. Yes, that's another grandfather. On my mother's side, my grandmother was born a refugee. Actually, she was born in Copenhagen, where I live now. And she was born by Russian refugees who fled the programs in Russia. They were Jewish. So my grandmother was born in a hotel just close to the central station in Copenhagen. And they applied for asylum in Denmark, but didn't get it. So they moved on and went to Germany, where my grandmother had all her childhood. Then history happened, and in school, she had to stand up during class with a yellow star on her chest. And then years later, she met my grandfather, who was a different refugee story, but he grew up in extreme poverty in France, in eastern France. And his parents couldn't feed their kids. So he was sent to the French colonies in Western Africa to work when he was 13 years old. So these refugee stories are in my family, even though I didn't think about it a lot before I, I started working on this film. Flea is your first animated film. And I think a lot of documentary filmmakers think about using animation in their films, but not too many are crazy enough to think they want to make an entire feature length animated film because it's quite a task. Why did you want to make this animated feature? To be fair, I didn't think it was going to be featured in the beginning. <laughs> so it started out, I was invited for this workshop in Denmark called AniDocs, where they combine animators and documentary filmmakers to develop ideas for animated docs. I had had a mini story in the back of my head for a long time. I'd asked him before if it was a Rachel documentary about the story. And he said no, but he said that he knew that he would have to tell his story at some point. And when he was ready, he would like to tell it to me. So I had it in the back of my head. And then I was invited for this workshop in Denmark. And they asked me if I had an idea, and I thought, okay, but maybe this is the way to tell his story. I asked him if he would be willing, if he was ready to, to share his story, and we would do it as an animated film. And he finally said yes. And also because with the animation, it enabled us to make him anonymous, which was a big relief for him, because this is the very first time he told the story. It's his life trauma. His innermost secret is in this film. So the fact that he didn't have to be public about it, and he wouldn't have to face people in the street or in the supermarket or be a Q&A and having to small talk about these things because it's still very hard. That kind of enabled him to say, okay, but yes, this is the right way to do it. And yes, I, I want to share my story. In the beginning, I thought it was going to be, you know, a short animated dark. But then when he started sharing his story, I realized, okay, but there's so much here. I can't do 10 minutes or 20 minutes film about this. And slowly the project just grew and ended up being an animated feature. I'm not sure if, if I'd known from the very beginning that I would have have done it you know it just grew in the process of making the film it took a long time to finance because it basically it's expensive and there's not a lot of money in the documentary world but i think it was really needed for this project as well because this is my first animation and i needed to learn to craft i didn't animate myself but i worked with a bunch of animators and i needed to know the process of making an animated film but also for a min to really be ready to share a story and kind of have the time to to go deeper and deeper into his memories
were there any animated features, documentaries that influenced you or had an impact on you? Well, there's like the crown jewel of animated documentaries also this year. It was the first film I saw where I thought, okay, but this can be done. Like, yeah, I was just blown away. I saw it in the cinemas in Denmark when it came out and I just sat there after the end credits and was like, okay, this is a new world to me. The first example of an animated dog I saw, this really works. And then there's this different, I, I saw a Swedish one called Never Like the First Time by a Swedish animator called Jonas Odell, which is four different testimonies of people talking about their sexual debut. Uh, and it's all animated and it works really nicely. And there's a bunch of like short animated darks that works really nicely. And I've, of course, seen The Tower and Montage of Heck. So I knew that this was something that could be done. But Walsh Bashir was the first prime example of, okay, and also how you can deal with trauma in animation. How did you and your animation team come up with the different animation strategies to be used throughout the film? It was really a long process of doing a lot of research. It all really comes down to Emin's voice. It's all tied to this testimony that I recorded. And we really wanted the style of animation to feel authentic to that. So it was a lot of doing research, looking at a lot of different animation films, but also looking at visual artists. We gathered this art bible where we combined a lot of material from different artists, different films and for like light and shadow we looked at a lot of edward harper's paintings because there's some there's such a richness and authenticity and loneliness in those images we wanted to have that in, in the film as well and we looked at different photographers for composition uh reiki Metzger and a russian guy called alexander grant so we combined all this we, we found and, and did this art battle we actually did an early test animation uh, where it felt a little toony where you know we, the characters had big eyes and the line was very clean and even though it was wonderful work, it just didn't fit exactly with the voice. So we went back and thought, okay, we need to redo this. And we redid all the character designs and, and had a character designer called Miguel Summer coming on board. Really has the kind of line that's a bit more flawed and it just felt more human. So it was a long process of finding a style that really hit the tone that's in the voice of the men. Occasionally, non-animated footage appears in the film, obviously for some archival, historical reasons. And then the final scene, which we'll talk about later, but occasionally like a movie poster, maybe one of the spaghetti Western posters. How did you choose what you were going to make non-animated? We put archival footage in there. I, I wanted to remind people throughout that this is a documentary film. And the reason why I'm in has to be it's for historical reasons. And Again, it was just a lot of research. I started out just on YouTube, looking for cultural footage on YouTube and finding material from Afghanistan in the 80s and Moscow in the 90s. And from that, we could kind of take the little elements that we would also bring into the archive, into the animation. So it felt like we go seemingly between the archival footage and the animation. But some parts of the archival footage, you know, is just historical, where we really want to show this happened at this period of time. And some material is just, you know, more about the mood. You have kids flying with a dragon or and you see kids in a window and they have Jean-Claude Van Damme or Solas of Cologne posters on the back of the wall, which kind of resonated with the story I'm in told of him having a crush on Jean-Claude Van Damme. So it was all like trying to make sure that what I'm in told the archival footage as well. Typically, you know, documentary films, there's a pretty distinctive production process and post-production. It's fairly linear. Obviously, you can do pickup shoots later on and so on. My understanding is animation is a totally different process and that in some ways those two phases are reversed. Yes, definitely. It's a very different process. Of course, I record all the interviews, all the sound with them in. I also filmed it on video, so we had it as a reference for the animation. But 
the fun thing is the big difference is that you don't really you don't really shoot or animate before the edit. So we had to do the edit first with these rough drawings, these storyboards. So we did this thing called an animatic. And so we were like with Janus, the editor, we had a final edit and thought, okay, but this is the film, but just with storyboards before we started animating anything, which was kind of amazing because, you know, in the editing room, all of a sudden, we could kind of ask for a shot. When normally when you do documentaries, you go out and shoot and then you kind of a slave up until you bring home. And if you don't have the close-up shot you need for a sequence, it's just too bad. But here, because we could just ask the storyboard artist for the shot we needed, we could really be precise in the way we want to build the, the different scenes. So it was a quite remarkable experience to to work this way compared to what I've done before. Quick question about your pre-title sequence. It's the first thing we see in the movie, and it's a distinctive type of animation. It's more spare, black and white. And it appear, reappears, I think, twice more in the film. Can you talk about your decision to, to create that sequence the way you did and how you felt it was a great way to launch the film? The first sequence is a lot of people running and you see houses tumbling around them. And it really came from one of you said it for the men where we talked about what home means to him. Three is about finding a place in the world where you can be who you are and with everything that entails and hadn't found a place yet when we started doing the film. And I had a feeling that he was still me. So I wanted to put that in there visually somehow and see him in this group of people who are fleeing and seeing that they're just, there's no home, there's no place they can stay and they're always running. So that was the idea. And then you have it multiple times in the film. In the beginning, it's very much, I mean, later on, he keeps fleeing because he has to tell this, this fake story. And in the end, it represents the people who are being now. As we get into the film, you start with establishing kind of the interviewing style. So we see Amin lying back. We see you suggesting that he close his eyes. You ask him if it's okay, if he's ready to talk. It's surprising to me a little bit, probably, because I think of people sitting across the table from each other when they're doing an interview. And this has a very different feel. It feels a little bit like therapy. It feels a little bit like a confession. Can you talk just about your approach here and how you conducted this interview? I have a background in radio. I've done a lot of radio documentaries before. And we have a big tradition for it in Denmark doing these radio documentaries. And one of the first things I, I learned when I worked for national radio in Denmark was this technique of interviewing where because in radio you, you don't have an image, you really need the subject to be very descriptive in how they speak. So by having them lay down and close their eyes and talk in present tense, it bring them back to the situation. And every interview you start out with them describing the room the location they're in. So, for example, in the beginning of the film, he's in his childhood home in the garden, and I would then ask him, what did the garden look like? What kind of plants are there? What did the house look like? What are the colors in the walls? What do you see outside the walls? And all this would give the animators a lot of material to animate from, but it would also bring him back in a specific situation. And the way he talks about it becomes different. It generates new memories. Slowly, he kind of, you know, relives it instead of just retelling it. It is somewhat therapeutical. And what he told me at the very first interview was actually that he didn't mind if the film was going to be made or not. To him, it was just important to share his story for the first time and kind of get it out there. And then if it was going to be done, it was fine. In that first scene, you ask for his permission to tell his story, and then he grants you that permission. Why was it important for you to show this? 
it's making this film was a very kind of symbiotic process of me. I've always been curious about his story since I was 15 years old. And he felt like this was the time that he needed to share. So he'd carried it around from, from himself for so long and felt like, okay, but now I need to get it out there because it's becoming too heavy to, to carry around. But all along in the process, it was super important to me to create the safe space around him where he felt safe and he felt like he could share. He felt safe sharing his story. So I think in the first year or so, we've agreed that we that we're just trying it out. That if at some point he felt like, okay, but this isn't working for me, he could always kind of walk out and we would make the film. Of course, when we started to get funding, we had to look each other in the eyes and kind of see, okay, but are we going to do this? And And he felt okay. Some of his earliest memories, not surprisingly, are of his childhood. You depict an Afghanistan that maybe Westerners don't know much about, which is this Afghanistan that was relatively peaceful, where there was a kind of a thriving society in Kabul. We did the first sequences, and, and he started talking about how he had this walkman his oldest sister had given him. And I would ask him what kind of music he listened to, and, and he told me you know, about it that he listened to Aha and Whitney Houston and Madonna and Roxette and all these songs that I love myself. And I was somewhat surprised by that. I was like, okay, but if I'm surprised, probably most other people will be surprised as well. So I thought, okay, we need to arrive in Afghanistan, in Kabul with this. And also I then started doing all the research and all the archive and, and the Afghanistan I saw, the Afghanistan of the late 70s, early, early 80s, just blew me away. Like it was so modern. So I was just, okay, but this needs to be in there. This surprises me. It's, everyone needs to see this. The opening scene where he's, I think he's three or four years old, and that is the scene where he's wearing the headphones and we hear that great aha song. Obviously, with this technique you described, he's going into a great deal of detail, trying to, to plumb the depths of his memory for you so you can write the scene. When it comes down to it, there's still, I'm sure, a lot of gaps. and You have to create many, many storyboards. And so I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of creative license, how did you draw the line between, well, here are the basic facts or here are the details, but I, here's what I'm going to fill in. Did you ever feel like it was in danger of becoming more your vision rather than his memory? He was very generous in saying that this is going to be his story scene through my lens. And he was a big part of the process of, of both developing the visual styles, but also I, I showed him everything. I transcribed all the interviews and organized it into documents and, and said, okay, he gave me this testimony that spans over like 30 years, but I, of course, had to make decisions and put it into a film. So I made some decisions, put it into a document, and we didn't have conversations about that. Of course, there is gaps in his memory as well, but those gaps I really tried to fill with material I got from reality, from the archival footage, which is something visually he didn't describe it. Then we would go like deep in research and find material that kind of showed up in the 80s and, and drag as much as we could from that. But it is, of course, his subjective story seen through my lens. So as any reenactment, you have to invent things, but it's all based on his testimony and it's all based on whatever material we could find from the real world. Speaking of his testimony, the big mystery in the film is the growing disconnect between what happened to Amin's family as the events are depicted in his diary and the stories that he's telling you that we're then seeing. And this culminates in the harrowing story about how his sisters were smuggled to Sweden. We think they don't make it, but they do. And you immediately follow up with, I just need to get one thing straight. Your two sisters survived, right? I thought your whole family was killed all these years. That's what I thought. I thought your whole family was killed. 
How did you hit upon this idea to show us Amin kind of reading the diary first, setting that up, and then come to discover later that that isn't what happened? Well, you know, it's just part of the the process of shooting the film. He mentioned that he had these notebooks, and I asked if I could see them, and then he found them, and I asked him if he could read a little bit from them, and then these stories came out, which were in Beggin High School, there were these stories going, going around, and those were kind of similar to the stories he read from the notebook because whenever he was forced to talk about his past, he really didn't want to he did it because he didn't want to lie to anyone. But when he was forced to say something, these were the stories that came out. So those stories were what I thought would be in his testimony. And then in the process of making the film, I realized that it was different. Just to be clear, he's forced to lie about his past because in order to get asylum, he basically needs to be orphaned. He, he thought so, yeah. It's not actually not how it is the human traffickers who got him to Denmark just doesn't know the law but we got his file and had a lawyer look at it and in fact he was given asylum because he's an underage refugee from a war-torn country so they didn't even look at his story so in all these years he didn't have to lie but he just didn't know were you at all concerned or intrigued perhaps by this idea that you know of the diary and the kind of the lie if you will in the diary might set I'm in up as kind of a traditional, unreliable narrator. No, but really because I've known him for 25 years. And if he was an unreliable narrator, he would have told other stories. But he, he didn't share any stories at all because he didn't want to lie. And so taking this kind of more than 20, 20 years wait to be able to share a story, I trusted him. And of course, I also did my research on what he told me. So I've been to the prison in Estonia, I've been to Moscow in the neighborhood he lived in. I'm supposed to go to Kabul as well, but I was going to stay, got attacked two weeks before I had to go, so I didn't go. And, you know, I checked up on all the the dates and the the events he told me to make sure that everything was right. I trusted him totally, but of course, from a journalistic perspective, you need to be that certain. So the material we have in the film from the prison in Estonia, the material we got, there is some of his relatives in the material, in the film. I did all these kind of cross-checks just to make sure that I I could rely on what he was saying. But I I trusted him from the very beginning because he'd been waiting for so long and wanted to lie before. It seems like a lot of the film is about storytelling itself. I think just in the first 10 minutes or so, there's just a lot of references to storytelling, explicit or implicit. We see how this story is going to be recorded and retold and that it's going to be retold to you as a filmmaker, the relationship between story and memory. Can you talk about why you have these kind of references to storytelling itself? What's the role of storytelling in Flea? But the role of storytelling in Flea is to Amin. He's never been able to connect his story. His past and present isn't connected because he always had to keep part of it a secret. So in order to be able to feel whole, he has to share his story, to tell his story. I think that was crucial in the process for me to understand how much it had affected him to not be able to be honest uh, and not being able to share his story. So I think the, the film is a lot about, it's really about what it means to not be able to connect your story and, and being able to be honest to who you are. I think over the course of the film, we realize Not only is the story going to resolve itself, but Amin's relationship to the story is going to change and his his feelings about being able to share it are going to transform his life. I think another part of your process maybe is revealed when 
he expresses that his sharpest memories about certain events. So for instance, when he and his mother and his brother are fleeing and they ultimately don't make it, they have to return to Moscow. He talks about the sharpest memories he has as they're fleeing through the forest. Can you talk about what it was like to build upon his memory and then create those sequences of fleeing in that moment? It, it, it really came from his voice and the way he talked about it. And, and in that specific sequence, there's two memories he had. And one was there was this kid who had these blinking shoes, which, you know, they're sneaking across the border in the middle of the night. And so to have these shoes on doesn't make any sense. It becomes tragical and comical at the same time because it's just unreal. And then there's this other sequence with this old lady who can't walk. She's too old and they have to walk through the forest for hours and hours and it's snowing and bad weather and it's cold and she just kind of gives up he gave me these testimonies and i would then of course build on it and, and write dialogue all based on what he told me but really try to condense these situations and show how surreal it is and and how cynical a situation it is for these refugees to be in one of the things that i noticed in the film was the use of birds <laughs> so we have bird sounds i think those are the first things we hear over a black screen are birds. We see birds from different perspectives where sometimes we're way above the birds, sometimes they're above us. But what was the role of birds in the film? First of all, like when I watched the icon footage from Afghanistan, there's pictures all over. It's a big part of the city, all these pictures. So also, I just wanted to show the difference between Denmark and Afghanistan. We have a lot of seagulls. We also have pictures of Denmark, but we have a lot of seagulls, which you don't have in Afghanistan because you're not close to sea here in the middle of Central Asia. The visuality of different locations we're in, in Denmark and Afghanistan, to really to show the differences, uh, both, you know, in color, but also with birds, what kind of birds are there. And of course, there's also something about uh, freedom, feeling free, and he's not. It's a subtle thing. Another thing that Amin is fleeing from, I guess you could say, is his own sexuality. He's certainly not free to express himself fully back in Afghanistan. And it's something he really grapples with. How did the two of you together figure out how you wanted to tell that story? In, in the beginning, I didn't really think it was going to be a big part of the film because he came up to me when he was 16, when we were both like 16, 17. So like him being gay never was like a big deal to me. It was just like a part of his personality. But then when he started when we started the process of making the film, I realized how the story of, of him being gay kind of mirrored the story of him not being able to live with his past in Denmark. So he, he always had to, you know, hide something. In his youth, it was sexuality. He couldn't be openly gay. And in Denmark, he couldn't be open about how he'd come to Denmark. So this fact that he's always fleeing from something, sexuality or his past, they kind of mirror each other. And slowly, but these are similar stories and, and needs to have somewhat the same weight. And also, his fear and his own prejudice against his own family. This is interesting and something we need to really emphasize in the film. And my big hope is that as much as this film should give refugees a human face here in the West, is that the film will also give queer people uh, a human face uh, wherever they're not accepted. This culminates in an interesting scene. He finally does come out to his brother and sisters, I believe in Sweden. He doesn't know what's going to happen, and we don't know what's going to happen. And you really keep us on the hooks. His brother says, get in the car. I think we fear the worst here a little bit. Not quite sure. Is he going to bring him to a heterosexual prostitute, for example? That's one of the things that crossed my mind. How are you playing on our 
own expectations and maybe prejudices about the way we think about how an Afghani family would deal with a gay sibling? I really wanted to kind of convey his own prejudice against his own family, and I had it as well. So I thought, okay, of course we could use the cinematic tools here to create this suspense feeling and you don't know as he's walking down the aisle but of course in reality he did know because his brother had said it before but i wanted to really convey all our prejudice in this sequence and his own especially towards his own family and kind of say okay but you didn't need to keep it hidden all these years they would love you, love you anyway right before that scene there's an interesting moment where he's meeting with this so-called guardian that's assigned to him at the border control he's asking for medicine to basically help him deal with the fact that he's attracted to men and doesn't want to be, or it's difficult for him. And so he's looking for this medicine to help him through it. She doesn't really know how to respond to that. And then there's this kind of highlight reel of these moments from his life that we have, in fact, seen as well through the course of the film. I just thought that was a really great moment where you bring in these quick hits of these moments from his life. What, what inspired you to do that? And the winks. You know, I love the winks, like from Jean-Claude Van Damme and the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, to me, film is really about emotion. And here it just felt like, you know, him realizing, okay, but this is something I need to live with. And him thinking back of all the times he suppressed the feelings he had. And I wanted to convey that emotionally as well. And it was, again, Janus, my amazing editor, and me trying to figure out, okay, but how, how do we do this? And then going back and, and seeing it a all the times where he had these forbidden emotions and him saying, okay, but this is going to be a part of my life from now on. And the same thing also, you know, when him and his brother is going for the, in, in the car, going for the gay club, there's this kind of these flashbacks of, I mean, with his family members. And to me, it was like, again, his emotion of thinking, now I have to say goodbye to my family. I'm not going to be able to see them anymore because they're not going to accept me for being gay. How do you show this visually? How do you show this emotion of him sitting in the car thinking this is a goodbye. The house hunting scenes are interesting for a number of reasons. After everything he's been through, hunting for a house in Denmark seems like a mundane situation. However, I think we all relate to it. We probably have all gone with somebody who we are in a relationship with and trying to choose a place to live. It's a very meaningful, deep thing. In the moment, you're checking out the you know amenities in the kitchen. <laughs> but in some ways, it's about our life together. In what ways was it universal? And what ways do you think it was unique to Amin's story? But the universality of, of it is really, you know, the meaning of home, of finding a place where you feel safe and you feel you can stay and you can be with, with your past and your sexuality and everything that entails. And for Amin, he's been looking for it forever, but haven't been able to find that place because it, he was uprooted as a kid and always had to hide something. So the meaning of home to him, I think, it was lost somehow. I asked him uh, at some point if he wanted to go back to Afghanistan and he said no. And he said that Afghanistan he knew isn't there anymore. So I think his feeling of having a home was lost. And because he couldn't share his story and he kind of had lost hope about it and was just moving from place to place. But in the end, he found a place which was wonderful to experience. I think this is really something that resonates with a lot of people, with me at least. You know, I think most people at some point in their life have a period of time where they look for a place where they feel they can be themselves. Before he finds a, a home, he finds a boyfriend who later becomes his husband, Casper. When he's returning from New York, his journey home does seem to resolve itself in the scene in the airport. He's 
going through passport control and he just sails through it, which is, I think, a great little shot because after all he's gone through, he just puts his little thing up there and beep and he's through and it's nothing. And then he sees his boyfriend, Casper, waiting by a pillar. And we hear Amin say, I can feel that something needs to happen. Then I love the way you depict this. And a long shot, he walks up to Casper and they embrace. It's a very simple scene. It's extremely affecting and effective. You know, I've been with him in a lot of airports and all the seats. And, and I thought this notion of finally realizing where home is, I felt like the airport was the, the perfect place to pick that. It just felt right against the, the emotional contact to the notion of home. And I love the fact that you end the embraces in a long shot rather than a Hollywood close-up. Just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it just also because, you know, it's like accepting being who you are in the middle of, of all this and of, of, with all those people around. The scene at the end where they move into their new house, Amin and Casper, it seems like more of an observational sequence on your part. You're just accompanying them and shooting this. But I don't know. One of the, the mysteries of watching an animated documentary is it's not always clear when things were shot or how they're put together. So that sequence, you know, I they had just bought the house and they were moving in and I just went with them and I gave them on what we call microports, so we call that in, in English as well. And then I recorded the sound and then I actually just filmed it with my phone. So what you see in the film is, is largely based on that material. All the sound is from that one day when they move into the house and then most of the visuals are based on the footage I shot. And, and I was just trying to kind of stand back and watch how they would react and they brought in the cat and let it out and just to see that kind of walk around in the house and everything being fresh and new. One last quick thing about that scene, which is just the very end of that, it's animated, of course, and then they disappear to go explore the raspberry patch. And then the animated tableau cuts to the actual live action shot. Did you always know you wanted to do something like that or that just occurred to you and your team in the edit? It occurred to me and the team in the edit. Uh, and luckily we had the material. We had them just walk off in the animation. And then I don't know who it was. I think it was one of our EPs actually that would be wonderful to actually see the garden, like the real garden in the end. And then we tried it out and it works really nice. We know filmmaking is collaborative enterprise. Is there anyone that you wanted to thank for contributing to the film? It's really a collective. There's so many people who helped out during this film. But yes, there are some core individuals. There's Janos Pietersgaard Jensen, who's the editor. And he's like the grand old man of editing in Denmark. And he's just been an, an amazing collaborator. Now we're kind of doing this race to get nominated for an Academy Award. And if we do so, it's his seventh film. He's edited that's been nominated. Like coming from Denmark, that's pretty remarkable. He's been an amazing inspiration. And then other than that, my art director, Jess Nichols, my animation director, Kenneth Lillicat, who, because this is my first animation. So those were like, you know, the key collaborators and helping me out in this process of making an animated film. And then of course the producers, uh, Monica and Tina and everyone at Sun Creature, Neon participant. Maybe There's... also mention the composer uh, from Stockholm, who's just, uh, made an incredible score for the film. The film, I know it was accepted at Cannes 2020, but it had its its world premiere at Sundance in 2021. And it's had an amazing run so far, hopefully more to come. And you will be opening theatrically on December 3rd. But 
clearly the film has resonated greatly with those who've seen it so far. Won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance and many other awards. It's hard for a film about an Afghan refugee to get traction, let's be honest. It's a difficult subject matter, and there have been other films about this. And people get inured to these issues. Why do you think audiences have connected so strongly with Fleet? I think a, a big part of it is because it's told from the inside of, you know, um, I've known him for 25 years. So because it's two friends who've known each other for so long, who know each other so well, you get a lot of nuance in the way we're talking and the things we talk about. Because it's not just about being a refugee. It's also about being a friend. It's also about sexuality and family and things that people can relate to. But I also think there's something about the animation because you're exposed to so many stories all the time in the media, in movies, in radio, in your feeds about refugees and about people struggling across the world. The fact that it's animation, I think you don't block it out in the same way and maybe allow yourself because you don't have a human face to relate to when that could become too much. But here it's, it's animated and being back and taking the story in another way because it's animation. That was my feeling, at least, when I saw Walsh this year back then. I was kind of like, okay, I don't think I would have been able to sit through this if, if it was just human people, like human faces, telling the story. But the fact that we had the animation as a barrier allows me to follow the story a, a lot more, and I got moved by it. So I think it, it might be the same here as well, that people open up in another way because of the animation and don't plug it out. I think you've done, and your team has done a masterful job coming up with the best possible vehicle, this great animated approach to such a rich, deep, rewarding topic and story. But I love what you just said about friendship. I think you've given us all a gift of friendship. And thank you so much, Jonas, and congratulations on Flea. And we can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you so much for having me. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film maybe you saw in the past or more recently that you think doesn't get the attention that it should get? There's a lot of Danish documentaries that I really love. There's one about this Swedish composer called Jan Johansson, who's this jazz composer, and it's called Trollkalen in Swedish, which means like the wizard, and it's about him. And it just has the most amazing opening uh, I've seen in a documentary for a long time. It's just these different people having earphones on and then you start to hear the music and you just see the reactions of these different characters and it's just beautiful to see how music can resonate with a person you just really see it on screen it's an amazing film 